Earlier this month, the University of Waterloo was visited by an old friend, the Right Honorable David Johnson, former Governor General of Canada and former President of U Waterloo. David joined current President and Vice Chancellor Vivek Goel to speak about trust in our nation, the topic of his 2018 book called Trust. They discussed the deterioration of trust that David observed even before the pandemic, how we can rebuild trust in Canada, and the role that Waterloo and our local community can play. Keep listening. So, David, uh, I was uh, very interested. I, I took a, the opportunity to reread your book. I'd looked at it when it first came out uh, as we prepared for this. And what fascinated me was you wrote this before the pandemic. And so you were already concerned about the erosion of trust uh, that we're seeing in society and the impact that can have on democracy. What would he change, if anything, given the experiences of the last couple of years, where we've seen even further erosion in trust? Well, Vivek, let me begin by thanking you for hosting this, and Carol, introducing us and bringing this uh, occasion together, and all of you for attending. Um, we began to write the book, Vivek, because I was increasingly concerned about the diminution of trust in our public institutions. Uh, and so the book began with... Um, discussing that problem and then moving to solutions. And as we thought about it and wrote about it, we realized that uh, building a trustworthy nation depends upon trustworthy communities, neighborhoods, families, enterprises, business, civic society, and various manifestations. And where does that come from? Well, that comes from trustworthy individuals who are leading these organizations or doing their own thing. And so we reversed the arc of the book and we began with the first part is how do we make ourselves trustworthy people. And then from that, how in that leadership do we establish trustworthy enterprises, communities, neighborhoods, and so on? And then ultimately, how you have a trustworthy uh, nation. The title of my installation address as Gigi was a smart and caring nation, a call to service. And those adjectives, smart and caring, are mutually reinforcing and very important. <clears throat> Trust, I think, has become um, uh, something to be treasured and cherished and something that in many respects has been disappearing. Partly because we live in a very interesting hinge point in history. The digital revolution moving so quickly with dramatic change, etc., is a force and a pressure. Um, climate change is a force and a pressure. Um, this unspeakable war that Russia has um, inflicted upon Ukraine uh, is a total absence of rule of law and the law of rule. The Western order that prevailed throughout the Cold War, in fact, goes back to the Marshall Plan after World War II and the international institutions that were attempting to provide a kind of international order has diminished somewhat. So these are all forces that we're dealing with. And then along comes the pandemic. So we had to think about the pandemic as well. And what I think what the pandemic has done is that it's, it's caused us to recognize even more strongly our mutual vulnerability, our mutual dependence. Um, and I hope that one of the few good things that comes out of this pandemic is we will realize how vulnerable we are one with the other, that we depend very much on vaccinations being um, distributed around the world uh, so that uh, we don't infect one another. We depend very much upon uh, coordinating our efforts uh, to deal with the pandemic and exchanging the science and the other things that are necessary. 
And I think it's caused us, Vivek, to look again at trust and another important quality, empathy. The next book that we're just finishing now is called Empathy. And there are two sides of the same coin, trust on the one side, empathy on the other. From that comes, comes hope that things will be better and we can make it better. Just to end with one comment on trust by um, George Shultz, the former Secretary of State, Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of Labor, uh, Chief of Staff to both Republican and Democratic Presidents in the United States. He died at age 99. And in his obituary, one of the things that was quoted was a statement that he said at one point of time that the trust is the coin of the realm. When you have trust in the room, whether it's the boardroom, the operating room, the training room, the family room, things go well. And you don't, they don't. Everything else is detail. And so I think the business of, of reestablishing trust where it's diminishing and reinforcing it where it exists is very important and it goes right to the individual. And of course, coupled with that is empathy and I'll talk about that a little bit later. And can you reflect on, um, in, in the book you cite the statistics from Edelman on Canada's position and you know, even as trust was declining in other countries, Canada's level of trust in institutions stayed steady, but I went and looked at the most recent results from 2021. We're now coming down in Canada as well. What do you think are the forces driving that in Canada? Well, Edelman has done a great service. It's been surveying trust in a number of different nations for over 20 years. And what's it found, generally speaking, is a, is a steady erosion in that trust. It's trust in governments or mistrust in governments, trust or mistrust in business, in NGOs and in the media. Um, as I say, with a, with a steady uh, diminution, and it was about three years ago that Canada became a distruster nation for the first time. That is, more than 50% of our population did not trust government, NGOs, media, or business. A few perturbations there, Canada came back up in trust and is, is diminished once again. But that's a, a, a phenomenon around much of the world uh, as we see these, these troubled uh, currents uh, coming, coming, uh, coming through uh, them. Edelman became uh, kind of a celebrated uh, survey when it was taken up by Davos, the world, annual World Conference at, at Davos, and has become somewhat of a, I guess, a phenomenon that we apply to many different institutions. But for me, it really begins with the individual. How do we, how do we establish ourselves as trustworthy people? And the final thing I'd say about that is uh, Stephen Covey Jr. has written a book called The Speed of Trust. His father wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, I think 25 million copies. But his son writes a book called The Speed of Trust, and it's equation. Trust equals cost plus time. If you and I, Vivek, have a trusting relationship, we have a cup of coffee, and we settle an agreement, and it was at best on a piece of on one page of a paper. We don't worry about arbitration clauses or anything like that. We trust one another. Speed, very fast. Cost, very little. Cup of coffee. On the other hand, if we have a distrusting relationship, uh, we negotiate at a great length, don't work everything out, uh, have stads of lawyers that are building pages of documents and they don't get it through. Um, so trust is really both the grease and the glue, the, the glue that holds society together, but the grease that makes it go better. And um, I think that's what we, we see in this troubled world of ours. And I think, it, I think we begin the restoration process by... Um, one, empathy, which is different than sympathy. Sympathy, I feel sorry for you. Empathy is I see your situation and I walk in your shoes. 
And that tribute that Gene Becker gave with respect to truth and reconciliation is a pretty good case study of what we have to do to rebuild and reinforce trust. Was Henry VIII that said, first kill all the lawyers? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> Sorry, former dean of law here. So. Right. Um, on that point, what role um, can and should universities be playing in uh, trying to restore trust or building trust? Well, I think, first of all, in this country, Vivek, it's to make our experiment in public ed education really work dramatically well. <clears throat> I was saying just over lunch that that we're not perfect by any means, but I do believe that we have one of the truly ranking public education systems in the world, through early childhood, right on through to postgraduate work and the research output. Um, and that's because the notion of equality of opportunity is, is fundamental in what makes up Canadian history, equality of opportunity, that every person should have the opportunity to get the best education possible, practical, feasible, affordable, to expand their talents to the very limit. And guess what happens when you go to the limits, you expand them even further. And I do believe that, that this country can have equality of opportunity and excellence too, that by truly being equal in the opportunities available, you expand your talent pool. And you also generate that curiosity that drives you to new heights, drives to new heights that this Waterloo Eye Institute will do in its important research and so on. And that's an example, I think, of what we can and should do is to build our education institutions at every level uh, to be really opportunity situations for our populace at large and to constantly be aspiring higher, to be functioning at very high levels of excellence. So I'd start with that. There are some other things I can do, but that's within our grasp, and it's particularly within our grasp at a wonderful institution like the University of Waterloo. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the Waterloo Eye Institute. And uh, we were just talking about barn raisers, and it's one of the uh, elements that you cite in the book as well, in terms of everyone working together helps to build trust. Um, can you reflect, because uh, in the book you talk about your experiences here with barn raising in the, in the Waterloo region. Um, you've since had the opportunity to visit so many communities across the country and around the world. What is it that makes it so unique here uh, that people are able to come together in such a trusting way? Well, it is unique, Vivek, and you, you, I think you appreciate things even more when you're, when you're away from them, as I have been since 20, 2010. Uh, and again, seeing this community from the lens of looking across Canada and looking around the world, it is special. And the metaphor that I usually use to describe it, to answer a question like that, is the barn raising metaphor. It goes back at the very least, to our Mennonite roots, and I think back earlier than that. Um, in fact, I think in Canada, Champlain's first settlement in Nova Scotia, Port Royal, would not have survived the first winter had the indigenous people living next to that settlement provided the uh, white settlers there with uh, fresh meat and uh, a tea that they made from evergreen needles, which we now realize had vitamin C in it that prevented scurvy. I mean, that was a a notion of barn raising in a sense. And, and the Mennonite tradition of barn raising is when a new person comes into the community, you help them build the barn. When the barn burns down, you help them rebuild it and so on. And that's a community effort where you're reaching out, uh, helping others in need, and not necessarily of your own tribe, of your own people. Uh, it's simply the people who are there who, who have that particular need. And I think that spirit uh, has really infused this community going back to its early roots. I used to give a kind of slideshow 
uh, presentation, which was called uh, What's in the Water in Waterloo. And the first uh, slide was the Grand River rolling through. Aren't, aren't we lucky to have a river that runs through our community with all the good that that brings? And the second slide was an overhead shot of a Mennonite barn raising above. Everybody working away, men, women, boys, girls, to rebuild this barn, etc. And the third slide was the second slide and the first slide. It was the barn raising in the water in Waterloo. To my mind, that's really the spirit of this community that actually has built a university, two universities, Laurie and University of Waterloo, different, distinctive, and very good. Uh, and they've grown from within the community and become better and better because of the support of that community. Great. And you haven't, in all your travels, you have, have you seen another community like this? No, uh, none that's it's absolutely duplicated. I've seen strains of uh, that DNA in other communities and other communities that have some special qualities as well that we would be wise to adopt and do. But I think it's another quality of this community. It doesn't have uh, not invented here. Uh, it is very eager and willing a, to share what has been invented here, but equally eager and willing to adopt what is available elsewhere and to collaborate in doing it. And I think, you know, this, this country, Canada, um, has a, a unique collaborative spirit. You know, the fundamental theme of our constitution is peace, order, and good government. Uh, and that means working together. Other nations model on the U.S. Constitution, for example, it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a much more individualistic focus. Ours is a more collective focus. Um, and uh, I think that collective focus is something we have here in many other parts of the country. But I'd answer your question by saying how important it is to be always learning, always listening, always ready to say, I really don't know, but together maybe we can find a better answer to this. Yeah, and as we were just talking about, the Waterloo Eye Institute, I think, is a really good example where, from the university perspective, uh, we want to have a leading-edge facility for teaching our students, for doing research, but also delivering clinical services that will be a place for our students to learn from each other, but to provide services for the community. And I mean, that's the spirit of barn racing, right? Everyone coming together to deliver what's best for the community. I think it's a it's a superb example, Vivek, uh, the Waterline student. <clears throat> I was commenting at, at lunch that it came as a school of optometry, which was a very good training institution in Toronto, not attached to any university. Do a really good job of the how you deal with examining eyes and providing some help to them, but not very much on the why. Why are we doing the how this way? And are there other, other ways of doing this? What do we do to get at the theory behind the treatments we're providing? What do we do with the particular problem that's stumping us that we can't deal with, can't, to get back into the theory to get at it? And I, I watched with admiration as this training school, as it was when it began here, uh, gradually evolved into a more and more powerful research organization, which puts the how and the why together. And as the only English-speaking school in the country training optometrists, has done such a service countrywide and beyond our borders. It's a remarkable story. And as I said earlier at lunch, the best is yet to come because look at the ability of this school of optometry and vision science to take advantage of the other richnesses that exist in the University of Waterloo community. The story I tell is my mom was blind at age 50 and uh, she had detached retinas in the eye. And she'd go from Sault Ste. Marie once a year, year and a half and, and Dr. McCullough, the ophthalmologist there would sew the retina 
the retinal lure together last for a year or so and finally diminished to the point that she was down to about 1% sight. Today, laser surgery would deal with that very promptly. And guess where laser surgery come from? Well, Donna Strickland won a Nobel Prize in physics just two or three years ago based on her PhD work, which was how you take laser beams and drive them faster, stronger, more accurate, measure, and do intricate welding work. Um, that today would deal with my mother's problem just like that. And another example of, and here you have a Nobel Prize winning laboratory 200 meters away to, co to collaborate on that kind of thing. The Institute of Quantum, uh, Quantum Mechanics and Quantum Computing has a research project dealing with light functioning at the quantum level, which is very, very small, and impacting different surfaces in different ways. The, that project is combined with work here on low vision science, where they can develop a microscope that will put that particular light beam into the eye. It will pick up macular degeneration much earlier, to get at it earlier. So I just mentioned those two examples because they are, they represent uh, how um, much opportunity there is in this community to reach beyond the immediate task at hand and collaborate with others pursuing something from a different angle and of course do that right across the land and be really focused on that transformational learning that shares it with other people so everyone is lifted up. And one of the other exciting pieces is about helping everyone achieve their full potential where they are and not having to travel a long way for treatment in, in your book. It's a very moving um, chapter where you refer to, I think it was with Minister Qualtrough, trip to China and visiting um, with a group that was supporting blind athletes and helping them to achieve their full potential. And to have a minister of the crown who is legally blind and has been able to get to that stage, it's with these kinds of technologies and supports that we're able to do that. Right? It's a story that, that uh, really touches my heart. I'm not sure that ministers of the Crown or Governor General should be seen breaking down into tears, but we did on that particular occasion, Vivek. We were there. It was the second trip to China. It was in 2015, I think. And uh, one of the things we did uh, was um, we were, we'd done the preliminary work that China was looking to Canada to assist with the Winter Olympics in 2022, which they hoped would be as successful as the Beijing Winter Olympics, which was a great step forward for them on the world stage. And uh, we met with President Xi at some length, two and a half hours or so. We signed an agreement with our Olympic Committee and theirs and a number of the amateur athletic associations for winter sports across Canada to exchange our knowledge. And uh, he, he said at that time that um, Canada will be um, China's trusted partner to carry off the 2022 Winter Games. Alas, other things intervened, so that wasn't possible. But, but that was then, and that was a, a, a wonderful development. And he also said... We, we hope and expect that 300 million Chinese will be even heavily involved in winter sports by 2022, and you're our trusted partner to help that happen. I had visions of young Chinese Canadians going to teach these sports and so on, speed clubs and everything else associated with it came apart. But after that visit, uh, the Canadian Embassy in China, like all ambassadors, has a small discretionary fund to invest in specific projects where there's a kind of Canadian expertise and meets an area of real need in China. So we, with us was Minister Carla Quattro, who was the Minister of Sport at the time and Minister for Disabilities as well. Carla is legally blind. 
uh, gold medalist in the Pan American Games in swimming, a marvelous, marvelous lady. And the initiative that was brought to us was the Canadian High Commissioner's Office had funded um, a Chinese uh, blind association, young people who were blind, who had a voluntary association to try to bring Braille uh, into China. China, without being disrespectful of this, does not treat disabilities with uh, much interest. And blind people have had very little opportunity to advance their schooling. The famous entrance examinations to get into the leading Chinese universities were not available for anyone who was blind because they weren't there in Braille. What the High Commission did working with this group is they provided the money and then some translators that could take these examinations and other texts and transfer them into Braille. So for the first time in 2,000 years of history, mandarins were chosen by entrance examinations to enter the public service in China from across the land. For the first time, young Braille, young blind students, thanks to these examinations being in Braille, could enter a Chinese university. And these young people began telling us about what a transformation that was for them. And Carla, I looked at her and the tears were running down her cheeks and the tears were running down my cheeks. Um, and for me, that was, um, in many ways, a, an even more important um, consequence of our visit. It was people reaching out to people in terms of their basic needs. And yes, we had the more political discussions with a very interesting and challenging person, President Xi. But on that people-to-people -people level, some very, very good things were happening and they were lasting as well. To me, it was a very wonderful story of uh, empathy and Canadians doing the right thing in the right place. Maybe we could uh, ask you, what advice would you give to young people who see a world uh, that is becoming less trusting, uh, that it's hard to identify what you should believe and what you read and hear and, and see on social media and other sources? I'd say be very curious, first of all. <clears throat> Curiosity leads you to question, um, to learn more, to listen to the other side of the story, to show respect for that other person on the other side of the story. I think from that comes important learning. And I think from that also comes the understanding that helps us to deal with some of these interpersonal conflicts and some of the really dramatic conflicts that we see in the world stage today. So curiosity is quite key. But I think it's curiosity that has a positive uh, turn to it. Um, the book we're writing on empathy has to do with that. Empathy and trust go together. But as I said before, uh, sympathy is I feel sorry for you. Empathy is I see your situation and I'm going to help you make it better and walk together. Um, and I, I would say as you develop your careers and your curiosity, um, keep the empathy at hand. I think I was probably 20, 21, 22, 23 when I really began to think about that. And it was actually my wife, I think, who taught me about empathy. And then having five children and, and now 14 grandchildren has taught me an awful lot about empathy. Um, in the trust book, we dedicated to children who offer their trust implicitly in the full expectation of fairness, and the fairness is key. So I would say, let your curiosity drive you and, and aspire, of course, tenaciously and so on, but be conscious of the other person and helping them along. David Brooks is an editorial writer for the New York Times. He writes a book called The Second Mountain. First mountain is the mountain that the high achievers are climbing, going up to achievement level after achievement level and having a degree of satisfaction and, in fact, real happiness as they have the acclaim of their peers. He says if they're really lucky, 
you look across the valley to the second mountain, and there are other people climbing up, but they're struggling. And you go across that mountain, and you walk with them to help them in their struggle. And he said that satisfaction or happiness that you found at the first mountain will turn into a sense of joy at the second mountain. And a great weight drops off your shoulders if you are no longer the most important person in the world climbing up that first mountain, but you've got room to climb up that second mountain with someone else and share their experience with yourself. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, follow, rate, whatever your podcast player lets you do. And hey, maybe you'd like to join us for other alumni events in the future. We host in-person and virtual events every month where you can connect with fellow alumni and learn from Waterloo experts. Follow the link in the episode description to see what's coming up. Uncharted, Warriors in the World is produced by me, Meg Vanderwood. Aju Chow is our editor. Aju and I are both alumni and staff at the University of Waterloo.